0: Um, So this sermon was originally um, was for next week, and it was supposed to kind of transition us into the uh, next sermon series that we have on studying through Romans and talking about politics, which we're still going to do next semester. Gotten some pretty good feedback about that. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, And you can be thinking about that. And uh, we'll come up here with uh, some worship activities probably in the next couple weeks so that you can prepare even over the break when you feel lazy and spiritually drained. Uh, or bereft, and you can, uh, you can actually do something that, uh, that could contribute to our series. It always just takes a little while at the beginning, but I've been very pleasantly surprised. We've had a lot of people uh, submit things in our stories and images, and one of the sad things is that we can't have everybody share. And so about half of the people who've submitted things have shared. So that gives you an idea. We've got 30 or 40 people who've presented things. and It's been great just to read through and talk through And we have used some of those in other outlets like small groups and chulas and things like that. Um, So keep up the good work uh, in that. Uh, But we'll postpone Leslie's sermon for next week. And then uh, I'll just do this one uh, this morning. We're going to be out of Luke and uh, we'll start the end of 19. And then on the uh, 16th, two weeks from now, we're going to do a Christmas service um i'm a total grinch so i don't think i'll probably be planning too much of that but we have had four or five people step up and want to do things vianette wants to ride a donkey uh and dance on the donkey i don't really understand that but uh you know whatever ends up happening i'm sure it will be great okay she wants to dress up as both mary and joseph on a donkey (laughs) sorry i misinterpreted that um so, if you'd like to be a part of that, you know the the I think four people we have working on that is Ryan, Melissa, Claudia, and um, Autumn. So, if you want to help out with that Christmas service on the sixteenth, and then we'll, we won't meet for I think three weeks, maybe it's only two two weeks, and then we'll be back together at the beginning of January um, on MLK Sunday, which I think falls on is it the twentieth, twenty first? Someone got a calendar up? No, it's whenever winter camp is. 19th. So winter camp for all of our focus uh, folks, if you haven't signed up for that already, you're crazy because winter camp is an amazing experience to uh, get to connect with people in uh, the various ministries across our city and to just really get to spend time uh, listening to uh, God speak to you through spirit. And so please, please sign up for winter camp. We're going to chastise you if you're a college student showing up on MLK weekend. Um, we're gonna be like, why didn't you go to winter camp? What's what's, what's wrong with you? And we'll have a series of interrogating questions to make you feel bad for your decision. (laughs) But on that day two, uh, we're going to do something that we haven't done ever. And it's probably going to make some of you want to skip. So maybe it should be a surprise that we're going to do this. But uh, we're going to split up guys and girls kind of like we did uh, with the mental health deal in the fall. And we're going to talk about dating as an adult. Ooh, yeah, I know. Look, people are super excited about that, aren't they? Dating in the adult world, right? I mean, all of their faces just show how much you are excited about that topic. Uh, it'll be good, right? You know, because we need to talk about that. Focus talks about it a lot and uh, has some, you know, great, great ideas. And so it's time for us to do that too as a church. Um, so that'll be that uh, that service in January. You can look forward to that. All right. Uh, okay. So uh, Luke 19, and I titled my sermon. I didn't really have time, obviously, this morning to come up with something too creative. So um, I just came up with a phrase that I think is very helpful for me. I'm going to see if I can try to get it to catch on, kind of like some of the stupid phrases Grant has uh, come up with and tried to get to catch on. Uh, Some of them happen, some of them don't. Um, But I think this is actually going to be the sort of main series title next semester as well. Uh, because it's Rome and politics, or Romans and politics, doesn't really roll off the tongue very well, right? Uh, and so the the way that I phrase this, I'm have to think about this before I uh, lose my train of thought. So playing games while the world is in change. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be the uh, the saying that we're going to operate off today and off of next semester. As you see. I think it'll have kind of two different meanings from this text, and I want you to write some notes down as we read through this, because that's primarily what we're going to do this morning is just read through it. There's enough stories and images in this uh, chapter that I think will kind of challenge uh, you to think deeply about uh, your life, about how uh, you live in the kingdom of God, and I'm also going to take an opportunity at the end, since we I don't really have anything planned to let you discuss a few things with some people around you, and then we'll share those things together. But again, the sermon title, and I think the title of our sermon series next semester, will be playing games while the world is in change. Uh, The first meaning of that just simply comes out of this this passage that has to do with uh, talking about money, but not money in the sense of saving money or being wise with your money. But this passage talks a lot about Uh, in at least three different sections, as you're going to read, people using the little money that they have or this sort of, um, you know, uh, system of security in Roman society, both the denarius and the penny, the widow's pennies, and recognizing that it's often in the small things that God works and in the sensational things that Satan works. And if we get focused on one or the other, Uh, We can lose track of of how the kingdom is growing, you know, little by little in the hearts of people. The bigger meaning, though, I think uh, for us and particularly for our sermon series next semester is just how much we play games with our world in our life, uh, whatever the current news cycle is, whatever our certain our current role is, rather than watching and looking for the world uh, as God changes it to be more and more in his image. And uh, so hopefully you can kind of connect with that maybe uh, through uh, us reading this. But again, uh, the idea is playing games as the world is in change. So 1945, here we go. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. Now, this story is uh, recorded in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. And it's in different places. In fact, in John, actually it's in all four Gospels, including John, which is not a synoptic gospel, not a chronological gospel. It's in two places. And so that might make you think, well, did Jesus do this twice? What's happening here? Uh, remember that the authors of the Gospels use the stories uh, to prove points or to make points uh, that they were trying to get their specific audience to understand. And so I think when we come to across biblical passages like that, that seem to happen in different time periods, we often say, well, is the Bible, you know, not authoritative? Is it not reliable? Remember that the authors are using these stories to prove a point. And probably in Luke's gospel more than any of the others, this is actually happening in a chronological order towards the end of Jesus's ministry. And so if you were to go back and compare this story to some of the other gospels, you're going to see some differences uh, based on the, the author's usage but I think that you'll come uh, out with uh, an understanding of why is it that used in this uh, passage in this time period versus another. And again, if you want the chronological ordering of when this actually happened, which I think is important for the story. I think Luke probably hits it uh, nail on the head there in terms of when this happened. So he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, Just to stop real quickly, what's happening here is the temple has become a place where people have done business as usual, incorporated the sort of spiritual things of God into their commercial life, which was acceptable according to the Old Testament law, but had begun to focus and emphasize more of their daily business routine then focusing on the purpose of the temple in the first place, which was to connect with each other through prayer and to connect with God. So um, to talk about Sunday services or to talk about, you know, gatherings in general, there's a challenge for us here in recognizing that so much of the time when we come together, and we've talked about this a couple of times uh, as we talk about us being a family and we're coming together and interacting with each other and all this is really good and great. But there seems to be a problem when we overemphasize the daily tasks that we have and the normal just going about life and forgetting what it means when the community of God gathers together. And this is probably one of the most uh, challenging things for me on a sort of a Sunday like this. And probably part of the reason that church is difficult for me is because I find myself often getting caught up in uh, the sort of you know, I don't know, uh, narrow tasks of what it means to do church. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to wait and figure out where lunch is going to be after. And I'm excited about resting. And there doesn't seem to be some strong spiritual sense or purpose of our gatherings. And I wonder, and there's a challenge in this to me uh, about how much we sort of play games uh, in the midst of God doing something pretty, as the scripture explains, miraculous as the people of God get together. And I don't mean sensational, I mean miraculous. And there's definitely a big difference if you think back through uh, how Jesus did miracles, had a lot to do with life's being changed one-on-one and not sensational stories. In fact, he downplayed a lot of these miraculous, natural things that were going on. So my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Uh, they've gotten so focused on their day-to-day making money. Uh, and of course, it's under the guise of that we're doing spiritual things. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And if you're not real familiar with the gospels at all, it might sound a little bit startling that a whole bunch of spiritual people wanted to kill Jesus. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the main reasons was simply that he was uh, pulling apart, pulling away some of the followers of these teachers. And uh, as Ronnie preached a couple weeks ago, casting some serious shade on the authority of the leaders uh, themselves, all right? So they were finding any way they could to do it uh, because all the people hung on his words. And of course, that assumed not on, on their words. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said, who gave you this authority? Now it's a fair question, Right? Uh, and one of the things that Luke's going to point out in this section is that all these questions that the Pharisees ask of Jesus seem reasonable and seem okay questions. I mean, at the root, all of us should ultimately ask ourselves what authority we believe the scripture has in our lives. If you're not asking that, you know, you, you probably don't read the scripture or don't pay much attention to what it says. That's just a reasonable question. What authority does the scripture have on anything that I'm doing in my life at any given time? Where does that authority come from? So this is a good question. The problem here is not that the question itself is bad. Like so many of the questions you're gonna see the Pharisees ask in this passage. The main problem is they're playing games with these questions. These questions aren't sincere questions. They don't really wanna know the answer. What they're ultimately trying to do is catch Jesus up in some, uh, you know, error or something that they can latch on to so that they can accuse him of wrongdoing or something like that. And again, I think this is really interesting. If we think about some of the questions that we have, particularly for Jesus or particularly about faith, there is certainly a difference, as this scripture points out, in asking those in sincerity and asking those with some, uh, you know, other intention or other purpose in mind. And that could be a lot of things. It could be justifying what we're already doing. It could be trying to point holes in something that sounds really authoritative so that we don't have to follow it, uh, whatever that may mean. But they're going to do this over, over, and over again in this passage. He replied, as he always does, uh, with these just (laughs) brilliant kind of responses. I'll ask you a question. It's fair enough. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Now, John, uh, you know, obviously, uh, paved the way for Jesus to do what he could do. Uh, John's baptism, do you remember what kind of baptism it was? Well, yeah, that's physically. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's exactly right. Maybe more spiritually, you're kind of underneath the surface there. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, it was very much focused on, remember this is the guy that ate locusts, which just, I mean, just think about eating cicadas, you know? Have you ever seen one of those things? They are the grossest looking creatures. I mean, there's probably grosser creatures, but (laughs) locusts, man. This week, somehow in my Facebook feed, I stumbled upon primitive woman who makes her own meals. Have you seen this video? What's weird is they Photoshop some giant like worm or something in the, the the sort of picture and then you watch the video thinking some lady's going to eat a worm the size of her and they've just blown up the worm but i mean she eats frogs and scorpions and just cooks them on this little rock with this little masher deal primitive woman cook okay that's a pretty cool video though i think you should watch it she mixes up this salsa salsa salsa
1: <laughs>
0: that uh Sorry, that's from Impractical Jokers. This is a, sort of a total side deal. That's all I did last night was watch about 10 episodes of Impractical Jokers because I figured out how to lock into someone's Sling TV account that wasn't mine. Um, it looks pretty good. But anyway, uh, this guy <laughs> was crazy, okay? People came out to see him at least because he was a spectacle, something to look at. But the main purpose was that he was teaching people that they ought to get right so that they could respond to Jesus' message. And particularly when the Pharisees and the scribes would come, this was not a message they wanted to hear. They were already right, okay? Uh, Now they might've agreed with it to some degree with the people needing to get right, and that fell into their message, but John didn't seem to focus on a lot of the legal things that the scribes and the Pharisees would have wanted them to focus on. Then of course, Jesus' baptism was different. It wasn't about just repentance, but it was actually about receiving the spirit of God as he brought that into the lives of people. It was the sort of, not just John's baptism, which was kind of the bad news, uh, but also the bad news with the good news, which is the spirit of God is now going to help you uh, stay forgiven in, uh, in your walk of life. So they discussed it among themselves and said, hmm, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Um, You know, I mean, come on, you know that in his mind, Jesus is just, uh, there's some part of him that's obviously sad because these people aren't coming to him with sincerity, but another, there's a part of him that's thinking, I've just shown them up for their duplicity and, uh, you know, completely just sort of destroyed that whole, what they thought was going to happen. And, And Luke Uh, records this happening four or five times in this passage, which is really amazing. And what's amazing about it is that Jesus has an ability to get to the heart of why are people asking the questions that they're asking. I love this passage in particular because it paves the way for what we'll talk about next semester uh, about the whole idea of politics. So much of politics is just playing games. It's just playing games with our words. It's playing games with, I support this position and I'm going to argue for it just to see what you do as a result of it. It's so insincere. I don't, there's not, it's a harder, maybe besides religion, politics is one of the most insincere forms of discourse uh, in our society. It's just insincere. People are playing games, They're not really interested in getting to the bottom of so many of these issues. They really are just interested in playing games. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He still sent a third. And they wounded him and threw him out. When the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him and inheritance will be ours. Which makes no sense. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of this, which is written? And before we go into this, obviously this is a story of Israel's relationship with God. If you take this story separate, you think, what's wrong with this vineyard guy, man? He just has no respect for human life, man. He just sends one person after another uh, to be killed. And of course, the, the idea here is that these are the prophets, that God sends in his love for people, even though they continue to reject him, right? And, um, and so, you know, the son thing is obviously Jesus. Jesus is foreshadowing the fact that he's going to have to die uh, for them. And so he, he looks at them and in, in, uh, he, he reads this uh, section of Psalm 118, which is a really amazing psalm. Uh, we'll use it some again next semester. And I think this is a great psalm. Try to memorize this psalm if you can. Uh, will someone pull up Psalm 118 and let's read it because this is an amazing psalm and particularly a great psalm for uh, our conversation about, uh, politics and political discourse and things like that. But I'll quote the line from it, and then you'll hear it again in Psalm 18. He says, then what is the meaning of what th- uh, that which is written in Psalm 118? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, meaning in a sense, the stone that was the weakest, the one that was thrown out, has in fact become the foundational stone in this building that was built. It makes no sense, really. None of us would go and try to build a house with some faulty bricks or rotted wood. But this psalm uh, uses this imagery uh, to, in, in po- part, maybe possibly uh, foreshadow Jesus' is coming, but probably more likely to just uh, fit into what, uh, what David is saying in this psalm from the beginning. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. All right, want to read Psalm eighteen or one eighteen? Don't get confused and read Psalm one nineteen. We'll be here for uh you know rest of the day. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Stand up, read it loud and proud. Or sit down and read it loud and proud. I mean, it's- <laughs>
1: O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love and forever.
0: So the stone that builders rejected has become the capstone. He's obviously talking about his inability to um, gain favor with the nations, to uh, be able to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, because at every turn, people are rejecting God's plans and God's uh, vision for how things should be different. And he notices within this that the very thing that they've rejected uh, has become the thing that all things are based on. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. I struggle with this. I don't know exactly what this means. It seems like maybe it could possibly mean that uh, no matter what you do, uh, the cornerstone will prevail and nothing that you build around it uh, will, as Paul talks about, in first Corinthians. But I honestly think too, that it could just as easily be if we fall on Jesus, you know, he'll break us to pieces, um, but also build us back up. But if he falls on us, there ain't no coming back from that. Uh, we will be crushed, but who knows? I don't know. You can go with your own interpretation there. Uh, the teachers of the law and chief priests looked for a way to arrest him. And they knew he'd spoken this parable against him. It was interesting because they often didn't know that Jesus was speaking parables against him. yet somehow this parable in particular, uh, they recognize that I think partially because Psalm 118 talks so much about the idea that people have rejected God, but in his love, he continues to pursue them over and over and over again. That his mercy is the thing that, uh, that sets his, uh, his path uh, on continually, um, sending these prophets and being able to, uh, Help these people be forgiven. Keeping a close watching him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't know, that's just pretty funny. (laughs) (coughs) Sorry, no laughing. Um they hope to catch Jesus in something he said, so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Of course, there's ironic uh, uh, twinge to that just because they themselves are in a time period where they're growing more and more upset with the authorities and structures and hate them, but are very willing to use them when it benefits uh, their agenda and their role. And this again goes back to this idea of playing games. It's This sort of uh, double tongue, two sided, use it when it's beneficial for me, and uh, and not when it's not. One of the things that's important to note here, I think, in this passage, and we'll talk about this quite a bit when we talk about Romans, is I mean, you know, Israel is about thirty years away from the last and final destruction of their temple and their way of life. This has happened twice before in what are called the exiles in the Old Testament but these folks are 30 years away from their way of life being completely um, over. Uh, as Rome goes to attack Israel and their uprising, the temple is destroyed. All the people in Galilee, which is where Jesus is spending his time, become enslaved. I mean, the, the temple destruction in 70 AD, which I guess is even less than 30 years away. You have to recognize that people had this on their minds at every turn. You talk about a, a difficult political environment to live in these people could sense and feel that they were 30 years away, okay? Maybe not exactly, but away from their whole way of life, uh, uh, the final exile of the Israelites. And, And yet they still couldn't catch what God was doing in this miraculous time in terms of bringing the kingdom to them, even as they would lose their physical kingdom. So teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality. But teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Well, they certainly don't know that. But again, an insincere question: Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, "Show me a denarius." Denarius was about a day's wage. I don't know. Assuming you guys make about ten dollars an hour, I don't know how much you make. Uh about seventy, eighty dollars, right? You know, a good day. So it's not. I mean, it's it's it was the you know uh, lowest of the silver coins, but. That's still a pretty good chunk of change. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. Uh, this passage has been used in a lot of really strange and interesting ways uh, over time, particularly to talk about finances and to talk about our relationship with authority and politics. But I think the, at the end of the day, again, all he is saying is recognize that if you live in the world of Caesar and play into the games that, you know, uh, society has for you. You'll fail to recognize what is actually God's in all of this, which is everything. You know, quit focusing on the small things and the games in uh, relation to the society and current way of life that you're in and focus on what God is doing here, bringing about the kingdom. So give to God, what is God's they were unable to trap him in what they had said there in public and astonished by his answer. They became silent. Some of the Sadducees uh, who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with the question, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies. And so I think what you get here is uh, the Sadducees didn't speak up too often, right? The Pharisees usually wouldn't let them. They were the rich group. They believed that the resurrection didn't exist. Of course they did because they lived by the motto, you got to get what you get now. Uh, And they were rich. So it made a lot of sense that they would want to uh, uh, believe that there was no resurrection. Best life now kind of thing. you know, mentality and thinking. So the questions that they attempted, which you can imagine, they the taxes one and the um, the authority. They thought, well, well these are going to be great, man. We're really going to catch him up with this. You know, the Pharisees planned. They thought about it. We're going to get him. And then they're finally like, you know, okay, let's just let the Sadducees take a chance. You know, and the Sadducees have such a strange and weird trap that they're going to try to get him into. I mean, the whole thing is just so strange. Okay. But you've got to kind of recognize that as it's happening. Cause again, some people, all they read from this is I'm not going to be married in heaven. What the heck is the purpose of marriage then, you know, eternal love. What, what the heck happened there? Uh, but that's really not the point of this at all. Okay. So some of the Sadducees, they say there's no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now. There were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. Second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Um, Which I I don't, (laughs) What were they like dying in weeks? Is she poisoning them? Like what, what's happening? Uh, Is she barren? I don't, this is obviously not a real story. This is like the craziest version of the law, uh, you know, played out kind of a hypothetical. We love to do hypotheticals, right? Uh, hypotheticals, particularly in politics and in conversations where we're playing games, hypotheticals play a very important role because, you know, uh, one of the most common, and I think at the heart of the question is probably good, but what do we do with the tribal person in Africa who doesn't hear about the gospel, right? It's one of my favorite atheistic and Christian hypothetical questions. Uh, at the root of that, there's a sincere question about what do we do when people really aren't exposed to the gospel? Uh, but in reality, there's often a sort of underlying idea that, well, I'm not really all that concerned about a tribal person in Africa. I just really want to kind of hypothetically ask this question uh, insincerely to sort of prove that I got you or whatever else. And so I would think that maybe that would be a better question uh, we could put here uh, to make this uh, modern for us. Finally, the one died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. (laughs) Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise for he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Of course, the Pharisees just liked he was proving that there was a resurrection that kind of helped them. So they were ready to agree with him when it agreed with what they had already believed. Then Jesus said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is a son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How can he, he be his son then? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to greet in the plate, be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue, the places of honor at banquets, that devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. I mean, this is how he ends this whole time with all of them. You can imagine if they were mad before, they're going to be really mad now. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow putting two very small copper coins. They're actually probably bronze coins. And these were like literally pennies. I mean, this would have been like six or 10 minutes of an average workday. So this would be like pennies, Okay. Which, what are the purpose of pennies? But that's a whole other uh, conversation. We really need to get rid of those. So annoying, you know? Um, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. Oh, I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has not put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So, uh, you know, I, this is after reading all of this and trying to kind of make sense of it, this is where I get the idea uh, or tried to kind of come up with that saying of playing games while the world um, uh, is in change. And both in that God and the kingdom works in the most small things, because knowing he has all the time in the world, these huge sensational movements that we tend to, to get obsessed with and attracted to in the daily news cycle, it seems to run how we think about how the world is going, has literally no play, no influence or effect or impact on God's plan in the kingdom that he's doing and he's working in. And so we get involved in playing games all the time, regardless of what that is, whether it's a role we're playing or uh, some duplicitous effort at, you know, trying to be one way and think or believe another way. And so this is going to be, I think, really important. And I think the idea is vague as most of my sermons are when I haven't had time to think through them more than 15 minutes, uh, will play a lot into our sermon series next semester. And so you can read through this passage because this will be one of the launching passages that we have, uh, as we go through Romans. Um, but, uh, I think that uh, that will kind of help and sufficiently think through this whole idea of playing games. So I wanted you to spend maybe five or ten minutes uh, with people around you, and uh, I, this will be kind of challenging. So I'll give you kind of two options here. All right. Uh, the first option is uh, to, if you really connect and understand, which I'd imagine maybe not too many people do quite yet, with this idea of playing games. Uh, what are some of the games that you play? Okay or that our society plays. And it doesn't have to be related to politics only. I'll tell you one example of my own is, uh, and I don't think many of you have probably experienced this because if I know you, I'm pretty different. But at my shop, I have this sort of like persona that, <laughs> <laughs> that is very different than uh, you know the values that I have. I'm very rude to people, very short with them. I hate when people come and ask me where Noah is because I'm like, I don't know. I don't have like a... a, a I don't know why I'm too tired to think something that immediately tells me his location GPS. Hey, there we go. Tracker on him. That'd be pretty funny though. If I embedded a tracker in him, that's like a black mirror episode. Um, and, uh, I just get upset. I just get really short with people. I'm not at all nice. And my philosophy in that, which is always justified is I'm working, I'm on, I'm on the clock here. If I sit and talk with everyone who comes into my shot, then I've got, you know, this, uh, Um, I'm wasting my time, my money. I'm, I'm not getting done what I need to get done here so that I can go do nice stuff and minister to people in other environments. And I've told myself that if I'm mean enough to people who come into my shop, they'll not come back and ask me questions. And, uh, of course it's a game. It's a game that I play. It's the, I'm the owner. I can do what I want. I don't have to, to, uh, you know, listen to anybody tell me how to be. And, um, it doesn't really work because at the end of the day, I could just as easily be nice to people and send them off. Uh, I don't have to be mean to them. There's no real reason for that. That just allows me to get out my aggression and anger at other people uh, and in a way control my environment. But there's ways. We play games, right? We play games and we're we're just these kind of like, I like the comparison of that book that Ronnie always recommended, The Chickens and the Eagles, We're chickens just sort of looking at our area and forgetting that there's this larger kingdom and world around us. We're not swimming around like eagles, recognizing this from the bird's eye view. We're just playing uh, these games that we play, roles that we're in. And when we do that, we fail to recognize how God is changing the world and moving the world into the way that he wants them. Not to mention that we're focused we fail to focus on the the significant things that are even going around in our society because we simply just are looking from the perspective of the game that we're playing at any current time. If that doesn't make sense with you, that's fine. We'll spend a lot more time talking about that next semester. I'd love for you just to talk about what questions you have from this passage. Uh, If there are any questions that you have or thoughts that you have, and I'd love to just uh, open it up. I mean, yeah, in some part, this is an easy thing to do when you haven't prepared a long sermon. Uh, But I don't want to just do this for the sake of doing it. We could just move right into songs and end early. But I think this passage has a lot to say uh, to us uh, in a lot of different ways. And so you can focus on anything you want. But take maybe five or seven minutes with the people around you and either answer the question of what games are you playing uh, in the same way that, you know, these questions. There might be questions that you've kept asking. Uh, And it's sometimes very difficult for us to determine whether our questions are are actually sincere or whether they just allow us to live in a certain way in this sort of in-between state without having to make a decision, uh, uh, living according to kingdom principles. So is that sufficiently unclear enough? Yeah, good. I like that. All right. Five to seven minutes. Folks around you, go for it.